Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Mike Winger, and today we're picking up where we left off last time in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, and we're going to be going verse by verse through the scriptures. One of the things we'll cover today is how believers get judged when we stand before God. Um, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Let's just dig right in. Um, I'll give you a moment to get there. We're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter and discovering um, wonderful truths for our lives, great theological principles. Tonight we're going to talk about um, how Christians are judged by God. There's an interesting topic, uh, but we'll be getting into that in 1 Peter. And, um, and so here we are, 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. There's two reasons why we would be told not to conform ourselves to our former lusts. The first reason is because you can. And it's, it's, it's interesting that as Christians, we get saved and then God begins this wonderful work in our lives of sanctification but it is not, the, the process on earth is not guaranteed to be a perfect process. Although there's a day when I'll be rid of this flesh, the day I'll be finally sanctified, you know, I'll stand before God in heaven, and I'll no longer be tempted by my own personal sinful desires. But you could, you have the option of conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Otherwise, why would they tell you not to? You don't tell people, hey, don't steal the moon. Because they can't you know you just except for that one guy <laughs> you what you do is you, you tell them don't don't walk on the grass hey don't take that don't eat those cookies you tell people not to do things they can do so here we're told do not conform yourselves to the former lusts your old lusts the desires that you have part as part of your sin nature that you were born with that are obvious to you and me you know, because we, we know that, in fact, it says that the works of the flesh are evident. It says in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are obvious. Like, we all know what these are. The second reason, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The second reason why we're told not to conform ourselves to the former lusts is because while you can conform yourself, you can also not. And that's really good news. You see, here's something that a Christian can do when they're saved that they could not do prior to being saved, which is I can choose not to conform myself to the former lusts, to the sinful life that I lived before I was in Christ. I am liberated from the control of the flesh, though I am not liberated from its desires. And I think that's the balance as you begin to understand Romans 6, 7, and 8, you know, and, and you grab hold of this idea that I have a daily battle and it is greater than my battle with Satan or the or the, the the enemy, you know, whether how, however he manifests in my life through demons or or whatever it is, or just lies the, through his controlling sway of the world, worse than my my attack from the world itself, because I have the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Worse than the world attacking me. To me, the worst enemy is in me. It is the flesh, because I'm like, you know, I wouldn't be struggling with the world's attack if it wasn't that I had an internal wicked desire still within me, the old nature, the sinful man. So we're told that we are liberated from the control of the flesh, but we're not liberated from its desires, which is why I have to fight this daily battle where I choose not to conform myself or not come in line with those desires of the flesh. Basically, I need to obsessively, daily, moment by moment, ask myself, is this of the flesh or of the spirit? Is this of the flesh or of the spirit? Now, I'm not here referring to what kind of cereal you eat for breakfast. I did one time have somebody very seriously call in. I think they had some, uh, a disorder of some kind, but they very seriously called in asking, this was probably 15 years ago, asking for prayer, saying, I need prayer about what kind of cereal I'm supposed to eat right now. And then there was, there was like Frosted Flakes was one and a couple brands that they mentioned. And I thought, oh dear, I wonder, you know, something is wrong that's going on in this person's heart and mind right now. And I tried to counsel them. And I, and I thought as Christians, it's not so much which cereal you eat as it is like, I don't know how much, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it has to do with the flesh. It's the carnal desires. It is the, uh, you know, you know, it's about avoiding sin and the very heart of what sin is. Um, so then he tells us, 
clearly in verse 15 that he who called us is holy and therefore we're supposed to be holy in all our conduct. And so you might be like, but Mike, wait a minute. I am made holy by Jesus. In Ephesians, he presents me holy and without blame before himself, right? In love. I'm washed and I am cleansed and I am holy. Yes, true. That is your position in Christ. But your position and your condition are not always the same. And sometimes your condition doesn't match exactly your eternal position with God. And so um, you could be the, uh, the, the, the guy that runs the company. You could be the CEO of the company, but you could also be stuck fixing a flat out in front of that very company with grease and tire marks all over your body because of it. So your condition's not matching your position. And so here we are to try to, in our condition, try to come close as possible to our, our actual position in Christ. So we are made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus, but that's why here it says, be holy in all your conduct. It's about making my behavior match, match uh, my, uh, my identity in Christ. This is an incredibly high standard. This is an incredibly high standard. God doesn't say, try to be a good person. I mean, because that is pretty much where the world draws a line. They're like, what's the goal? Try to be a good person. How do you define good person? Me. Whatever I am, that's probably what a good person is. Because in, in, you know, without doubt, when you ask somebody, are you a good person, what are they going to answer? Yes. So by good person, they just mean whoever they are. <laughs> but God sets the standard so high, so far up there, that Christians are called to walk in holiness. Notice we are not called to demand holiness of everyone else everywhere we go. We are called to walk in holiness ourselves, which is the difference between um, coming here to to proclaim, you know, I'm, I'm my, in fact, I actually, no joke, for the first time ever, within a week of today, I had read somebody who said that they had a ministry of rebuke. And I had joked about this in the past. I said, yes, oh, yeah, is your ministry rebu- rebuking people? Are you the rebukinator? That's it, you go around and you just, your ministry is rebuking everybody, and that's all you do is rebuke and correct people all the time. And I'm like, well, all, all you need to do is keep doing your ministry, but do it in front of a mirror. Because that's, that's where you need to start. We, you know, pull the plank out of our own eye first. So I'm to walk in holiness and seek to have holiness. But I still have, you know, massive amounts of grace towards others. And I recognize that I fall short of this and so does everybody else. And, and so we have the, the unity of the love uh, of the spirit kept in the bond of uh, the bond of the, what is the scripture in Ephesians? It says the um, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I still endeavor to keep this. But, um, but I'm desiring to walk in holiness. That's a high standard, and it's not to be nice. It is to be holy. That's the standard. I want to be holy. It's ironic that I come across this right as I'm teaching Tuesday nights on the exact subject that we happen to be going through in First Peter here. That wasn't really planned out, at least not by me. <laughs> so, um, but, but, I, but if you want, you can always go onto our actual church website. If you go to hosannachapel.org, hosannachapel.org, and then you look on, on the front page there towards the bottom on the right, there's a little link that says Hosanna School of Ministry. If you click that, you could listen to the whole study I did about holiness on Tuesday. I'm not going to recover that whole topic tonight, but I want to mention just in my survey of First Peter what this is about. The reason why we're called to be holy, the reason why we're called to be holy is because God is holy. That is one lofty reason. That is an extremely, you are so closely identified with him that because he's holy, you're supposed to try to be holy too. That's how closely he identifies himself with you. I mean, we are his children now, we're begotten again, and now now we're children of God. At the heart of Christian character is a commitment to holiness, not niceness. In fact, I have to, you have to sometimes not be nice in order to follow Jesus. There are times, as I'm reading through the Gospels on Sunday mornings with the high school students, we're going through John right now, there are times where Jesus did stuff that was just not nice. And I really think that a lot of Christians would be like, Jesus, you are not acting like Jesus right now. Because they have this this super kind, warm, nice version of Jesus. He was always walking in love, but always loving God first. And that is what balances out this this, um, sort of cruel niceness that some people actually end up engaging in. <clears throat> but holiness, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's as bright as the morning, it's as warm as the day, it's as refreshing as, as cold, cool water. It, it is, that's what holiness is. It's this beautiful, wonderful thing. 
And then at this point, someone always says, but Mike, we're not under the law, right? We're not under the law, Mike, so, so stop. <laughs> stop. Stop talking about holiness. Like, just talk about grace. Well, if holiness isn't the standard, then grace is unnecessary. Do you see that holiness and grace are part of the same story? And if we understand our forgiveness, then we also have to understand our call to holiness. Him who forgave me, him who united me to himself is holy, and therefore I should strive, should try to conduct myself in holiness. We're united to a holy God. Be holy for I am holy, as Peter quotes from the Old Testament. So God's my standard for right and wrong. And we would all agree that God is a strict standard of right and wrong. I mean, it's just, it's right, it's wrong, and God's the standard based on who he is. His character is that standard for us. And then I am to then have that standard in my heart and mind as I live my daily life on my, in my job, as I go to my employer, as I live my life before my, my children or my, or my spouse, as I live my life in, in ministry or in some involvement or maybe even in just extracurricular activities, things I just do for fun you know, activity sports or your bowling league or something like that. But that holiness is not something you do while you're in church, but something you do because you're the church. You know, you're the church of the living God. You're indwelt by him. So the world is not my standard. There are believers out there, though, who have, uninten- I think unintentionally, have made the world their standard for holiness, their standard for how they should live. And so when they see someone living an extreme Christian life, where that Christian's living very counterculture, they're, they're kind of offended by it, even though they're also believers. But they look and they go, oh, that's, you're being weird. You're too strict. You're taking this thing too far. How many of you have heard that before? I've heard this before by my family when I first uh, started walking with the Lord. And some tried to talk me out of it. I just don't see why you have to go to church all the time, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and they claimed to be Christians too, but, but didn't realize that their standard for how to live as a Christian was the world. So basically, you know, call on God when you, when you run out of money or when someone gets really sick. And that's about it. So the world is not, and, but here's, this is something important. Other believers are not my standard either. I am to be holy because God is holy. This can get really, really prevalent in our culture in our Christian culture, where we look to a spiritual leader that we, we all have kind of those people we look at and we go, man, there's, there's a believer I really respect and I really look up to and somebody who's really ministered to me just by kind of being who they are. You know what I mean? Like there's something, you're just around them and they're loving the Lord and it just, it just ministers to you to kind of be around that person. They're not your standard. Just like Paul wrote, follow me as I follow Christ, but, but not follow him, period. It was qualified. Only in the ways in which he follows Jesus should we follow Paul. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. This is, I think, one of the things that led the Israelites to get weirder and weirder and weirder and further and further and further from God's standards. Because what would happen is rabbis, they would no longer just quote the scriptures, but they would quote a rabbi quoting his interpretation of the scriptures. Then they would quote the rabbi who quoted the rabbi, and then the rabbi who quoted the rabbi who quoted the rabbi. And pretty soon you're so far from the scriptures that you've you got like literally books in between you and the Bible. That when Jesus shows up and he just tells it straight like it is, they go, no one ever teaches like this man. And what they meant was along those lines, he's, no, he's not just quoting rabbi, you know, whoever. He's just actually reading the Bible and telling us what it means. And that's what we've got to do. Every generation of Christians has to go back to the source the scriptures, and let the Bible tell us how to live our Christian life and kind of grow out from under the wings of our, of our spiritual parents and say, what does the Bible actually teach me to do? How am I to live as I follow Christ? So that we don't find other believers as our ultimate ideal because we get more and more distant from Jesus, who is our ultimate ideal. <clears throat> so verse 17, he says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. This is a really trippy verse when I first read it. I, I don't know, 10 minutes ago when I first read it for the first time. And, and as, I was, as I was just thinking about it and making stuff up, no, I'm just <laughs> but I remember you know, initially reading this, uh, I don't know how long ago, and it just kind of caught me. I'm like, whoa. He judges according to each one's work, a judgment according to works. And I conduct the time of my stay here in fear. This is kind of an intimidating type of verse. In fact, it's literally encouraging Christians to walk in a certain type of fear. So let's kind of unpack this and get what this means. 
If you call on the Father, he says. First, that's the qualifier. If you call on the Father, do you call on the Father? I certainly do. I call on the Father for a, for a sense of closeness and companionship. I call on the Father for help about 35 times every 35 seconds. I call on the Father for help. I seek him for wisdom. I seek him for just his grace in my life because I will not last an hour without the grace of Jesus Christ. So I call on the Father all the time. Also during tragedies and difficulties. Today I prayed for people at church and I prayed for them. I called on the Father. You know, we call for help. So he says, do you call on the Father? You want God's help? Well, what does that have to do with fear? The idea is this. If you call on the Father for help, don't you know that the one who helps you is also the one who judges you? Oh, Father, oh God, please help me, help me, help me. It's, it's the old phrase, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. And while I know there are some atheists who are principled enough that they, they or I, I don't know if it's principled enough or, or stubborn enough or whatever you want to call it, but they will not pray at any point, even to the point of death. They're just going to... But the old phrase is that when you're in the foxhole and the enemy's coming and the gas starts building and you're like, you run out there and get shot or stay here and choke, that all of a sudden everyone starts praying. <laughs> Atheist, not uh, theist, you know, everything, deist. They're all just like, ah, help me, God. And there is something in man that sort of says there's a God. I, I should say there's something in creation that declares the glory of God. And sometimes we listen to that when we're in a, a point of despair, <laughs> a point of difficulty, which is a good thing. God uses that to draw people to him. But if you call on God as the ultimate, uh-oh, everything else has failed, I need help, then you should also recognize that the same God who is the ultimate helper is also the ultimate judge. And you will stand before him one day and he will deal with you. According to each one's work, with no partiality, he'll just judge completely fairly according to each one's work. So again, someone goes, but Mike, all my sins are dealt with on the cross. I won't have a judgment like that where my sins will be thrown before me and I will be punished based upon the sins I've committed. And I would say, you're right, you won't. But that doesn't mean that believers have no sort of judgment to go through. There's different judgments in the scriptures. And today we're going to look at uh, the judgment that believers go through. So let me first read to you how my sin was judged in John 12, 31 through 33. John 12, 31 through 33 says, Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus speaking. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And so the world, the judgment of the world took place on the cross. And for those who choose to accept Christ, the judgment for punishment is already dealt with on the cross. But there is still a future judgment of believers separate from the judgment of non-believers we read about at the end of the millennium when they're resurrected for judgment. There is a certain kind of judgment. For that, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and let's read about it. First Corinthians chapter 3 verses 10 through 15. This is the judgment of believers. And this is, are the works are being judged. Notice what's being judged here. It's not, um, it's, it's not me to see whether I'm saved or not, but rather my works to see which of my works will be, the good works will be carried into heaven. So let's look at this verse, <clears throat> verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. The foundation here is the gospel of Christ, but then the how you build is what you build after self, after you're saved. So it's the growing in grace and the growing in the knowledge of God, growing in, in our obedience to Christ, those types of things. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you're not saved by Jesus, you have no foundation, right? You're built on the sand, not on the rock. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation, how we live post-salvation, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, the day speaking of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what's being tested here are the works themselves. And if you'll look, let's kind of back up just a little bit. Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Now, 
the gold, hay, these are all just different sort of qualities of how you live your Christian life. The types of ministry you engage in, whether that's at home. I mean, I think everything should be ministry to a Christian, not just what you do in church, but rather your, your marriage is a ministry. It is a primary ministry. Your, your singleness is a ministry. I mean, read 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness should be there to give you more opportunity to serve God, not more opportunity to like surf singles dating sites. I mean, the purpose here is serving the Lord Jesus with more of your time than you can as a married individual. Um, and I, I really remember the time before I was married as this wonderful, awesome time of just, I could, I could serve the Lord like every night of the week. Nobody, I wasn't abandoning my family to do it. <laughs> I'm single. You know, you get married, you take on a new ministry. Now, in the, to, as unto the Lord, I need to minister to my wife. We need to have a date night. That's a ministry. I mean, how I, how I build into this relationship between me and my spouse as, as like Christ and his church, that's a ministry. That'll be tested one day. You see that? And then also the high school ministry. Well, that's a ministry. I will stand before the Lord and that ministry will be tested. And I will get to see whether or not I even, what my motives were. Um, how, how I did it. Like, was it with man's wisdom or with God's wisdom? I will get to see with my faithfulness or just basically wood, hay, stubble, or was it gold and precious stones? Whatever it is that you do, whether it's work or whatever, you do it all unto, unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that'll be tested and you'll get to find out. Now, what happens if the works are considered good? God goes, ah, that was beautiful. That was wonderful. We receive a reward, it says here in verse 14. If your work endures, you receive a reward. So it goes through the fire. Fire, in this sense, purifies, right? Burns up the stuff that doesn't belong. So my work's tested and I receive rewards. What are those rewards exactly, Mike? I don't know. But that's cool. <laughs> I don't feel like I need that. I'm like, Lord, I just want to serve Jesus. I just want to follow you. I first found out that there was rewards. I was almost bothered by it. I was like, oh, I don't really... I, I feel like it makes it like less... Oh, like like it makes it less good of what I'm doing, you know. It's, but the thing is, I'm not really doing it for rewards, to be honest. But if God chooses, he wants to reward us, then praise his name. That's what wonderful. Maybe it's just so we can cast those crowns before the Lord. That's, I'm looking forward to that then. Lord, I, wanna, I just want to give it all to you. I don't think it's for some sense of pomp or pride or something like that. Uh, but rather, God just, he chooses to reward us. Now, what happens if the ministry that I did in my life, whether it's at work, home, uh, church, friends, whatever it is, if that ministry was done somehow wrong, the ministry in my own life, where my own character, this your character is eternal, you take it with you into heaven, right? Who you are. What if what I built into me was was I, I let the lust of the flesh, anger and pride and, and selfishness and whatever, you name it. I let that become dominant in my life. What then? Well, that will be burned up and I will suffer loss. The loss of what? The loss of what? The potential of what I could have done for the Lord and how I could have walked for him. And how, I mean, really every day is 24 hours of opportunity that disappears and is gone forever. But what I did that day will be remembered and then I'll cash in on it, so to speak, in eternity. What's that going to be like exactly? I don't know, but I do know this. Either it will last or it will be burned up. But notice this. We will not all have identical experiences in this. It's unique to the person. I don't think that our, our experiences in heaven is like a perfect static, even experience where we all experience exactly identically the same thing for all eternity. Um, that'd be fine if that's what God did, but that's not what I think the scripture teaches. And it seems to indicate here different rewards, different experiences. Notice though this, that the person will still be saved. That the individual who puts their faith and trust in Christ is still saved. Even if they had lousy works and they all got burned up, it says what? He is still saved, yet as through fire in verse 15. So this is a judgment for believers, for those who are saved. Not for the non-believers where there's, in Revelation we read about this eternal judgment and boom, you know, you're cast out forever. There is not, there's salvation there. Notice, though, he's saved as through fire. In this sense, it's like if your house caught on fire and you got out, but all your stuff burned, you're saved as through a fire. You know, that's the idea. You, you suffer loss, but you're not suffering. That's the difference. You're not, it's not purgatory where you're burning and suffering and suffering. And no, no, you suffer the loss of those potential good works that you end up wasting. So that's the judgment that believers will go through. And I think that it's really good for us to try to evaluate our lives 
and to try not to evaluate other people's when it comes to this. Because I don't really know very well how you're going to go through this. Because I'm not even entirely sure how I'm going to go through it. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, just one chapter over from where you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of judgment that will come and when his works will be tested. And he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So even the counsels of the hearts, or in other words, motives. God will even show my motives. I learned this over, over years of being a, a single guy, is that sometimes girls' motives are not clear to guys. And I'm like, no, this girl just really, you know, is asking for help and prayer and turns out there was other interests in her mind at the time. <laughs> and you're like, and you're like, oh, that's weird, you know, and that's, that's just the way it is. People's motives are sometimes not even known to the individuals. We see it now as high school counselors and leadership. We look at the two students and sometimes who are interested in each other and we're like, we know it before they do. You know what I mean? So sometimes you know it before they do and you're interested in seeing where it's going to go. But God ultimately knows our motives completely. And of course, those will be tested too. I'm sort of curious to know, Lord, my motives say I'm teaching Sunday night. Okay. Is this for me? Am I promoting myself? Am I seeking to bless the people? Am I seeking to honor God? What is my goal here? Well, I think I know what my goal is. I think I understand my goal. I want to I serve the Lord. I want to use the gifts he's given me and feel, and, and feel like, yes, I'm being faithful. I'm maximizing my time here on earth for, for God's glory. And I think I know what his, his calling and giftings are in my life. So I'm going to try to use those as much as I can. But the Lord ultimately is going to check, going to check that. And that day will declare it. And until then, I'm just going to make my best guess. And I'm just going to follow the Lord to the best of my ability and let God be the judge. So that's, that's where we go. Is I don't even fully judge myself here. I just do, do my best. And I leave a little bit of wiggle room for, for my friends and family and those around me so that I'm not trying to, trying to sort of light the fires too early. Because <laughs> I don't know. So that's why we're told to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear, it says. Turn back to First Peter, if you would, please. This fear... Um, I know a lot of times I hear people teach that the fear of God just means to respect God. Like, I fear God, will I just respect him? No, that's actually not, <laughs> that's not what it means. It does include the idea of respect. However, it is not merely respect. Fear involves, and I'm going to say this very carefully because I think this is a good way to put it, Fear involves a sense of accountability. That's what it involves. A sense of accountability. It's not terror, like in horror movies, where you're like, oh, oh, maybe he's going to kill me for no reason. I mean, you're not thinking that. It just involves a sense of I'm accountable to God. I've noticed that there's a difference when someone's volunteering and they're just, they volunteer at the church. And, and, you know, we don't ask as much of volunteers as we do of people that are on staff. If somebody's volunteering, we're like, hey, do you think you could come to this? We're like, nope, can't go. All right, see you, like, see you next time. Hey, think you can be there? oh, yeah, I could be there. Oh, great, thanks. I'm glad you're there. But then when someone gets hired and they're on staff, and we're like, hey, we need this room to be cleared out and ready for such and such event. And they're like, <sighs> and we're like, suck it up. You know? <laughs> you're, get, you're getting paid for it. You get it done. You know, you're not a volunteer. It's just what, just what you got to do. And that's just how it is, right? Well, the, the reason why there's a shift that happens there is because now there's a sense of accountability. And it changes the interaction, changes the relationship between the two people. All of a sudden, people treat me differently when they, when they look at me and see me as some sort of person that I'm, they're accountable to. And you've probably seen the same. How many of you have been a boss and had, had someone serving, you know, in a sense under you, as far as authority goes, you know what I'm talking about, that things change. Things change. And because there, there's a sense of accountability between you and that person. And so for God, we conduct ourselves not just as like, Jesus is my BFF, but he's also the one I'm accountable to. So that I still treat him with a reverence and an honor and a respect and a fear in the sense of accountability. Um, so verse 18 there. It says here, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold 
from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were redeemed, it says. Redeemed. That word is so beautiful and perfect for demonstrating what we have had through Christ. I could talk about the fact that redemption was a term used for when, uh, if somebody went to a, a market where they were selling slaves and they, and there were people who did this, who would buy a slave just to set them free, that they redeemed that slave. They paid the price for them and then they just set them free. Yeah, you're free to go. That would be a redemption, and that's something that God has done for us. But there's also a beautiful picture. Uh, Leviticus 25 talks about this idea of a redeemer who's a kinsman or a kinsman redeemer, a person that um, can buy you back out of bondage because they're a close relative of yours. And the book of Ruth offers a really good illustration of this. Boaz, if you're familiar with the book, Boaz, he redeems Ruth. He pays the price for Naomi and her land and everything like that because he is a close relative. You've got, to be, you've got to be related in order to make this purchase, to buy them back. And in this, it's a beautiful picture of how Christ had to come in human flesh because he had to be related, so to speak, to be our kinsman redeemer, to be our substitutionary sacrifice so that he could go in our place and take care of this. And it's just such a beautiful thing. I encourage you to just read through the book of Ruth. Um, it just plows through the whole thing in one uh, in one in one sitting. It's only eighty five chapters long, and um, no, I'm just kidding. It's it's quite a bit shorter than that. Um, <clears throat> and look at Boaz as a picture of Jesus Christ. Look at Ruth as a picture of the church, and Naomi as a picture of Israel. And it's just this incredible, awesome book. Um, so we're redeemed. We are redeemed, and we're redeemed not only from the guilt of sin. That's that's sometimes my favorite part, to be honest, because it's just such a relief comes when I realize my sins are forgiven in Christ. But we're also redeemed from living a life of futility in sin. You know, when that slave was purchased and then set free, he didn't put chains back on his wrists and go back to the labors he had gone through before because he's set free. But you know, there's a story about animals that are bred in captivity, particularly one I've heard of, was, which was a gorilla, where they bring the gorilla from a cage it's always been in forever, and they bring it out into the wild, where they want to release the animal into the wild. And they open the cage, and the gorilla's just sitting there. Not going anywhere. And they're like, go and be free! You know, and jump around and swing and hit your chest and stuff. But no, it just sits there. Because it had just gotten so used to being in this prison that that was all it knew and it just in fact we even get this with people sometimes they they don't want to get released from prison because prison life is all they know and sometimes i think as christians we need to be reminded that we've been set free from not only the guilt of sin but from the control of sin in our lives and stepping out of the cage is stepping out of the control of sin in your life so we're redeemed and, and for this reason because one day in fear of accountability right i'll stand before god and i'll be judged so i want to walk in holiness because I know that all this stuff's going to go through a fire, a cleansing, a testing. But also, I want to be set free or walk in holiness for another reason. And that's simply because I have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why you know, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So walk in holiness. He, he tell people, oh, I, you know, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So it was just not, not only freedom from the guilt, but, but freedom to now live, live a life without walking in that sin continually. So then this redemption, it implies a price, and First Peter talks about this price. We were redeemed at a price, a high cost, the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Now, these are all concepts and words that are really steeped in the Old, in the Old Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament, my encouragement, if, you, if it's ever your first time through the Old Testament, just read it. Don't worry about understanding every aspect. You just kind of have to get the idea. Because what you're learning is, I mean, I really, I can't help it, but I got I to gotta use my, my Karate Kid analogy here. Um, because I think it's so perfect. The original Karate Kid movie, which I, I, of course, haven't seen since like the 80s, but when I was like three, no, I was a little older than that in the 80s. But, uh, but I remember, you know, you know, the, you know, the crane kick and sweep the leg and all this sort of thing. But there was the wax on and wax off. And Mr. Miyagi tells, uh, tells Daniel's son to wax on and wax off and to paint the fence. And he makes him do it in a specific way, right? You can't just wax on and wax You gotta, you gotta, no, no, you have to do it like this. You have to do it like this. And you have to paint the fence like, oh, 
you have to like paint the fence like this with the paintbrush. You know, you can't just like paint the fence. And he's and he does all these tasks. You know, he, I think he does something where he's mopping or I don't know. Anyway, he does some other things as well. And then one day Danielson just he just flips out. He's like, oh, I hate this. This is the dumbest thing. And da da da. And Mr. Miyagi just starts attacking him. He just starts swinging at him, right? And he and so Danielson responds. With he's doing his what wax on wax off, and all of a sudden he realizes like, oh, these are like blocks and and stuff. Like I'm I've learned how to fight karate, and of course he looked a little cooler than me just now, but <laughs> but you get the idea. You get the idea. I didn't. I don't have a Mr. Miyagi, so um, I learned how to fight from SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> but I think that what we have to do is look at the Old Testament as your first time through it. As like you're just learning how to like paint the fence and wax on and wax off. And you may not fully get the reasoning of it all now yet, but just get it in you. Get it in you. Get it in you. So that as you come to the New Testament, you can just explode with understanding of both the new and the old. As all of a sudden he gets to that point where he's like, oh, I know karate. That you come to that point and you're like, oh, I know theology. You know, I get it. I get it. And so that... As a Jew who is steeped in the Old Testament, when he uses these terms of a, 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 the blood of a lamb who is without spot and without blemish, this is totally steeped in Old Testament wax and uh, fence painting. It's completely, it's completely in this stuff, right? The Old Testament is what makes the cross make sense. The Old Testament is preparation for Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. If there had been no Old Testament, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no lambs without spot and blemish, no Passover, no prophecies, Jesus shows up, dies on the cross, nobody gets it. There needed to be this period of revelation to prepare people for Jesus Christ, to make sense of who he was and what he did. And so the the entire Old Testament system of um, sacrifices and all that, they all point to Jesus Christ. And I do think that at some point on Sunday evenings, I'd like to restart something I did a little while ago, which is uh, Jesus in the Old Testament and just kind of go through uh, maybe the whole Old Testament, just looking at the pictures of Christ. Not trying to understand everything as much as just looking at the pictures of Jesus, because that is one of the coolest things you could do ever on earth. So we may do that. We may do that. Maybe if you guys let me know your feedback, if you're like, oh, do that or I'll kill you, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. Um, yeah. So the preparation for Christ there in so many ways, uh, not just to foretell Christ as in prophecy, but get this, to legitimize what Jesus did. To go, oh, I get this. Oh, I get, I get this. I get this. I get this. It just legitimizes what Jesus did. They all got it because all these Jews, they knew what it was like to have a sin in their heart realize they've been separated from God because of the sin, and then to take a lamb without spot and blemish, to bring it to the priest, to t- put their hands on the lamb, and to confess their sins, spiritually, you know, symbolically transferring their sin onto the animal, and then to, with their own hands, kill that animal, have it burn on the altar, have its blood sprinkled, all so that they could be forgiven. And yet, they had to do it again and again and again. And Jesus came, and what did John say to introduce him to the Jews behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world you know wax on <laughs> so verse 20 or excuse me uh, let's let's look at this a little bit more actually back up um, what according to this passage are we redeemed from well we're re- redeemed from the aimless con- aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers. Now you might think this is just talking to Jews, but I don't think so. I think it's talking to all of us. We all have inherit unless you're, you're you have some really godly parents who God pulled them out of the aimless conduct received by tradition from their parents. Then you have probably received some aimless conduct from your parents. I know I uh, may have inherited a thing or two. God redeemed us from this, not only from our sins, but also from the aimless Conduct, the things that you've just always done, that everybody always does, and it's no big deal. In fact, I hear from people, they say, well, I was raised that way, and I turned out fine. And I think, are you sure? Because <laughs> I'm not sure you turned out fine. <laughs> I saw on, recently on Facebook a, uh, a post that was, you know, a picture of kids sitting in the back of a pickup truck, an open pickup truck, and they're all just sitting in the back, and it said, share this if you rode in the back of a pickup truck when you were a kid and survived. And I just was so tempted to type, like, what do I do if I didn't survive? 
<laughs> of course you survived because the ones who didn't don't have Facebook accounts. But, but sometimes we assume things are okay because I was raised that way. Because we just live this way. This is how we are. I, I once actually met a pastor who told me that him and his wife argued and fought and would literally yell at each other and call each other names. Those were his words. Um, and it didn't affect their marriage at all. And I was just like, wow. You're, you think that that's, not only do you have this issue, you think it's okay. It's your tradition. And you're passing it on to your kids. I've had dads talk to me about how their, their son is so angry. And as they're telling me, they're fuming about the thing. And they're trying to figure out what punishment they need to give to their kid, you know, in order to stop them from being angry like this. And I said, well, how about you stop being angry and then maybe they'll learn how to not copy you. I mean, what do you think the kid learns that when the thing doesn't work, you grab it and throw it? <laughs> they learn that from somebody. So we, we learn these things from uh, our, fr- basically we inherit some un- ungodliness frequently from our parents. And I'm not, now I don't want to throw parents under the bus. Honor your parents, obey them, absolutely, 100%. But where we see their behavior as falling short of God's standard, we just don't want to copy that. We don't want to carry that forward and make it our traditions. We just want to go, hey, Lord, your grace is upon them for that. I, you know, I thank you for the good examples they were in my life. But I don't want to follow where I, where I feel they're falling short. And the same is true for our spiritual leadership. Remember, we're to be holy because he is holy. That that's our goal. So we're redeemed from those aimless traditions. <clears throat> Some of these traditions, man, are just... I think that it really, it's good if you just back up and look at your life and ask yourself, are there things that I do that I would be embarrassed to do in the presence of Jesus and his disciples? And if the answer is yes, then just be like, Lord, help me see this the way you see it so I can just live a redeemed life. Verse uh, 20 He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. We we talked somewhat about this before um, last week. Uh, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So he was foreordained. I mean, we're seeing this, this plan of God that's played out in glory and wonder, and it was all known to God. Every work he's ever done has been known from the beginning. Jesus specifically was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Adam and Eve's failure wasn't a surprise to God. The cross was always intended from the beginning. Um, but check this out, verse 21, who through him believed in God, believe in God. Through Jesus, you believe in God. That's a really neat way to say it. That's, that's like heavy theology right there. You believe in God through Jesus. As in, without Jesus, you don't believe in God. People say, we all worship the same God. And I'll say, well, unless Jesus is part of that, you don't worship the same God. Because at least Christians stand here saying, through him, you believe in God. John 5.23, Jesus said, think about these words. He said, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says you should honor the Son, that's Jesus, not only because you honor the Father, but in the same way that you honor the Father. Honor the Son as you honor the Father. Well, I mean, how do you honor God? Well, I live my life for him. I give him glory. I give him credit for all things. So I should do that for Jesus? Talk about the exaltation that we give to Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2.23, it gets even more specific. It says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Because Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way. If you go through the gate, you get to the other side. You, know? <laughs> you go through the way, you get to the destination. You, 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 you have the Son, you get the Father. That's because Jesus is our mediator. Right. Um, turn with me to John 14. John chapter 14. And we'll look at this. Um, this is what we call systematic theology. We, we take an idea and we grab verses from various parts of the scripture that all deal with the same idea to kind of give us a well-rounded view of that idea. So First Peter talks about this, says, through Jesus we believe in God. 
So if you have Jesus, you believe in God. And then I read through John, 1 John, now we're at John 14, verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, will you not know where you were going and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. He's thinking, you'll do some, like, whammo thing. You know, and, a, yeah, and we see the Father, like his glory. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Wow. Jesus literally mingling his identity with the Father in a way that, again, pushes you, I mean, forces you to the Trinity. Uh, this, This idea of God is three in one. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But they're in and they're one. And this is, this is I mean, God, there's nothing like God. So there's no one to compare him to. But this is the teaching of the scripture. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll see the, the, the theological statement of this. Hebrews chapter 1. This chapter I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would think God wrote it specifically to disprove Jehovah's Witness doctrine because it so carefully and clearly, step by step, dismantles the idea that Jesus is Michael the archangel or that he is a created being. And here it is, Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll just look at the first three verses, but of course the whole chapter really just just complete. I mean, you can't believe this chapter and be a Jehovah's Witness at the same time. Um, Hebrews 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So we're talking about the Old Testament here, right? Various ways, various times. There was a variety of manners and that God, he, a vision or a dream or he sent a prophet or, you know, um, send an angel, different ways of speaking. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. So he's the heir of all things. He's going to inherit the universe. <clears throat> all, all things were made through Christ. That's super interesting because um, that's so consistent in, in John and in Colossians 1, John 1 in, uh, in Hebrews here. And in other passages, Jesus is always the way things were made. It's the Father who created and it's Jesus is the through, through him. So they're both active in creation. But we see Jesus as being the avenue of creation. And then you look at John, and John identifies Jesus, John 1, as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and there was with God, and there was God, and all things were made through him, right? Through him. Then you look at the parallel of Genesis 1, and we have God spoke, let there be light. So he spoke, he, through the Word, he created. And whether that's a picture or a literal thing, I mean, I don't think God has mouth and, and vocal cords at that, I mean, God's spirit so I think that this is, a, this is a way of drawing a picture for us to say, ha-ha, wax off, boom, there's Jesus in Genesis 1, creation being made through him. Um, so uh, verse 3, <clears throat> who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This identity of Jesus Christ as, look, you don't get the Father without the Son. But with the Son, you get the Father. And so that's why we preach Jesus. Because we want people to know God. Um, so back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So we're told to love the brethren. This, this call to holiness, you find, is, is, is directly translated into a call to love. Because as believers, if I want to walk in holiness, I need to walk in love. Um, holiness is never an unloving thing. It is, it is, uh, it is connected. Christians are called to love, but notice this. We're called to love the brethren, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another. Christians are specifically called to focus a certain degree of their love on believers more than unbelievers. And I say this because the scripture consistently teaches it, but sometimes, especially in our modern kind of humanistic, philanthropic culture that we live in, that sometimes people miss out on this. My relationship with unbelievers is that of outreach. My relationship with believers is that of family. And there's a difference. Galatians 6.10 supports this idea. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. If you're able to, you know, if you can't do it, you can't. But if you can, do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. That I'm especially supposed to do good or help people that are believers. This is my emphasis. This is, this is actually my number one priority. If I can feed a believer or a non-believer, I'm, I'm to try to feed a believer. If I have a choice of between the two. That's what the scripture seems to declare here. Now, is that a lack of love? No, 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 no. This is, this is the difference between family and outreach. Now, the non-believer, what do I want? I want him to get saved. But <clears throat> so often, I see people who start ministries, and they focus the entire, and it's a helps ministry, but the whole helps ministry is focused on the non-believer first, and the believer's kind of kicked to the curb. It's like, well, you're already saved, so you don't need it. But I need to eat, too. <laughs> and they're, they're family, It'd be almost like a, uh, you know, you could feed your kids or your neighbor's kids. And you're like, well, you know, my kids, they eat all the time. I'm just going to feed my neighbor's kids. And you're like, well, you should probably feed your family first. And then out of the overflow of that, get to minister to other people as well. In Acts chapter 5, we read about how Stephen, this guy, was called. And he was called to be over a specific ministry. Who remembers what ministry he was over? Waiting Waiting tables. And it was for a specific group of people. Widows, right? And there were, there, were, there were believers who were widows either of the Greekish, kind of the Hellenistic culture or the, the Jewish culture. But notice this, that all of these widows were believers. This widow's ministry was a ministry to believers who were widows. It was not just widows in general. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a ministry to widows in general. I'm saying you should prioritize ministry to believers that that the outreaches that we do that are all based on I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to do good works do good works do good works do good works so often the people I know in those outreaches come back disappointed because they feel like they never preach the gospel all they do is feed people all they do is this all they do is that so we ought to prioritize that my relationship with the world is primarily outreach focused my relationship with believers is primarily love focused <clears throat> at this point some would say mike but don't they know we're christians by our love they do but let's look at that more carefully John 13, John 13, verse 34 and 35. (coughs) Jesus is always misquoted. Always misquoted when I hear people quote this passage. John 13, verses 34 and 35. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, or by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Believers love each other. How will the world know that, I, that we're Christians? Not by our love for the world. I'm not saying don't love the world. But they're going to know it by our love for each other. They will see the family love that exists with believers. And this will cause them to know something is actually different about you. That's what they'll see. <clears throat> Technically, it's our love for each other that causes the world to see that we're Christ's disciples. Some people, though, and I, I, I dare say many, they get this backwards. They get it completely flip-flop backwards. They can be very accepting of the world and very critical and criticizing of believers. There's almost no limit to the amount of criticism towards believers, but when the world does something wrong, they go, well, you know, what can you expect? They're the world. As if that makes it okay. 
That's like saying, you know, well, ISIS murdered more people today. Yeah, but what can you expect? They're ISIS, you know, let's not criticize. They murdered people. That's wrong. <laughs> like, we should criticize that, you know. Um, but to believers, they can be very harsh. If they see a believer and an unbeliever in a debate, it's almost as though they look for a reason to side with the unbeliever and go against the believer. Those of you who like to use social media for witnessing, you know these people because they find you, right? As soon as you're sharing with somebody, you get a believer who chimes in to correct some, some random, pointless, and ultimately insignificant error on your part, which basically derails you from trying to witness and share with the person you're talking to. This is not godly love. This is not spiritual. This is carnal. The world will know you're, you're his disciples by your love for one another. When I, for instance, the way you respond to a Christian who does things slightly different than the way you would is a great test of this. If I drive by someone, I see him holding up a sign, and it's like, hey, without Jesus, you die in your sins and go to hell. And if they're holding up a sign that says this, and I'm thinking like, wow, I'd feel really weird standing on the side of the road holding up that sign, but I don't actually see anything doctrinally wrong with it. So, Lord, I just pray you'd use them and guide them. Whereas somebody else would drive by, and they're Christians. And you know what? Do you know who, who these guys that hold up a sign or they go out street preaching, who their biggest combatants are? Christians. Christians who stand up and go, well, you don't represent Christ. And they don't mind coming and getting right in the face of another believer who's trying to represent the Lord, even if they're doing it imperfectly. But they would never go rebuke their coworkers for stealing from the company. Oh, because they're the world. You know, what are you going to expect? But they're totally critical of believers. And I just have to say, if that's your attitude, please realize that's actually a worldly attitude. You are not going to spend eternity with the world. They're not your family. Believers are your family. The redeemed are your family. Let's love one another. If your greatest criticisms are of the church, and if criticizing the church comes like that, and criticizing the world is like, oh, I pat it with all these excuses for the world, then something's wrong in the heart. Maybe I'm loving the world in the wrong kind of way. It is just assumed in the scripture that your social circle will primarily involve close relationships with believers. It's just assumed. And so I think we should try to strive to make those, as well as outreaching to the world. I try to create those opportunities to witness to the, to the world, but my primary relationships are with believers, and that is, I think, how it's supposed to be. So I shouldn't feel bad about that. I should instead love each other fervently with a pure heart. Fervence is, fervency is the degree, the like, in, intensity or the seriousness of it, and then a pure heart is the motives, um, that I would just have those right motives. And I, I like <clears throat> to close, close this concept with 1 John 5, 1. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone, loves, everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. You're a believer too? Already. Hey, your family. I remember meeting a cousin I had never met before. I went to Missouri and met this cousin I'd never met before. Right? I didn't even know what she'd look like. And she's, um, she comes up to me and just gives me like the biggest bear hug I've ever got. And she's like, oh, cousin, da, da, da. And I'm from California, so we're like, you know, scared of strangers, you know? So <laughs> she's a big bear hug. It was like instant family, you know? And then I just like, was like melted. I'm like, oh, okay, great. We're cool, you know? But it was her just immediate recognition of the familiness of it. And I think that that would be a great way for us to be with other believers. And, and it's, I don't have to be like, you're a believer, huh? Uh, pre-millennial, post-millennial, what are you, are you Calvinist, Arminianist, or are you Calvary Chapelist? What are you exactly? Anyways, you know, where's your stance on this? And it's okay for us to go, you know, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just treat them as, as brothers and sisters, unless I find some other reason not to. Like, I'm just going to embrace them as they are. And I think that's a, a great and naively wonderful place to be. <laughs> um, so then it says that we're born again by the, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And at this point I go, and you might too. Word of God meaning Jesus or the Bible? What do they mean here? And there is sometimes a lot of confusion. I don't want to confuse Jesus, the word, as in the person, with what God has said, the other use of the phrase, the word. Unless the context indicates it's safe in the Bible to assume that the statement, the word, or the word of God is referring to what God said, not specifically to Jesus. Now this can be um, a little bit confusing, but let me give you an example. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, it says, the word of God, 
is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to, even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God is like a sword that discerns. But Jesus, he has the sword in his mouth where the word comes from, right? But he isn't the sword. Hebrews 12, 13, you go, but it, there's some ways in which that's kind of like Jesus, but then there's ways in which it's not. And that's simply because there are similarities between Jesus and the word of God, this, what God declares. For instance, the word is God's expressed thoughts, like God has expressed to us. Jesus is the express image of God. Um, the word is truth, because God cannot lie. So whatever his, thy word is truth, he says. But then Jesus is the truth. So everything God says is true, but Jesus is the truth, like the ultimate truth. But there are differences between the word, speaking of what God declares, and the logos, or who Jesus is. For instance, Jesus is eternal and unchanging, but God might declare something to us that becomes now his word, which was not there before. So there's like additions, and and at one point, Genesis hadn't been written. You know, none of the Bible, books of the Bible have been written, but Jesus has always been eternal and existent. Jesus is a person. The word is, a, the, you know, what God's declared, this is a standard. And that's why it discerns and it, it's, it's used to judge us as a standard of truth. <clears throat> but Jesus is a person. You can't have a personal relationship with the Bible. I mean, you can try. I mean, it can affect your person, but it's not a personal relationship. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is God. This is not. So, so I just want us to know the difference. Um, in this passage in First Peter, it's talking about the written word or the, the things that God declares. We were, you know, the gospel message in particular. That that's how we were born again. We heard the gospel message and we received it. And it actually uses the word word twice, right? It uses it again in verse twenty-five. All flesh is as grass. The glory of man is the flower of the grass. The glass withers. Its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The first time it used it two verses ago, it was the word logos. The second time it was the word rhema. Logos just means word. It doesn't necessarily always mean Jesus. It just means something declared. And then rhema is usually more of a, a narrow use, meaning like a specific word. The things that God has declared specifically. Um, so now, now this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. And um, uh, any questions on that? You, you guys got on that? You know why? Because I think people get so confused when I hear conversations with Christians talking about like, wait, but Jesus is the word, right? And, and like sometimes it, it just gets really confused. When in doubt, it's probably talking about the proclaimed word of God. There's only a couple places where Jesus is called the word. Um, now, all flesh is grass. The glory of man is like the flower and the grass is going to fade and the flower is going to fade and all this life is temporary and fading. And I think one of the greatest illustrations of this is the poem Ozymandias by Percy B. Shelley. How many are you familiar with the poem Ozymandias? Listen to this poem. It is about a traveler who finds a fallen awesome stone statue that's fallen to the ground of a guy that owned a great kingdom which is now gone. So here it is. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, the head of the statue, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, the, the, the plaque for the, for the statue. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. No thing beside remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. His entire kingdom just gone, and just it's just sand Look on my kingdom and despair. And I'm like, I will despair. Because this is what ends of all man's kingdoms and of all man's pursuits. It's all temporary. The greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. You probably couldn't point to where his kingdom was on a map. (laughs) This guy, you know. Uh, Everybody had their heyday. And then they had their nay day. And and it ends up just being like grass. But, but, 
the word of the Lord endures forever. What God, his promises that he's declared to us that we hold on to, these are eternally true. And it will always be the case. So we can have great hope in this. And, um, and I want to close, if I could, with uh, Psalm 84, verse 5. So please turn there. Turn to Psalm 84, verse 5. As we remember that, as we're going through First Peter, it is the pilgrim's handbook to remind us that this life is temporary. And I've got to be reminded of this because the longer I live here, the more I tend to hold on to things that are here. But I don't want to hold on to it. I want to send it on ahead is the idea by living for the Lord, you know. Psalm 84, verse 5, it says this, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Whose heart is set on pilgrimage. That the only usefulness of this world is that which I can carry forward into eternity for the glory and for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. And I must constantly remind myself of this because the flower fades, the grass withers. And I need to sort of teleport my heart future, you know, forward to the future. And like Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven, you know, where moth and rust do not destroy. Let's pray. Father God, our prayer tonight is that you would help us with, I mean, all these wonderful truths and great things that we've learned and, and been studying tonight. But what we need is a heart of pilgrimage. What we need, Lord, is to just be set for your kingdom. To love the the brethren, to love our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, to outreach in love to the world, and to do all of it, Lord, knowing that your eternal promise is what we cling to every day. In Christ, in a sense, we make great sacrifices, but in another sense, we we make no sacrifice because he's no fool to lose what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And we want, to, we want to be ready for that day when we will stand before you and our very works will be judged. We want to have gold and, and, uh, and silver and precious stones, things that, that are pleasing to you, Lord, so that our lives were, were lived worthwhile because you redeemed us for a purpose. For a purpose. We love you, Lord. We ask that you fill us with your gracious Holy Spirit. And let us just live more sanctified lives this week than last week. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Mike Winger, and thank you for thinking biblically with me today. Did you know that I have a YouTube channel? And then on my YouTube channel, every Tuesday, I actually do a live stream on the topic of theology and apologetics. And it's an interactive live stream. At the end, I answer your questions. So if you'd like to join in and chime in on the chat or be part of that, it's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Just about every single Tuesday, we're doing it. Hopefully, I'll see you there. And until then, don't forget to check the context. <laughs>